Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome. With Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish is now in session. Eric Larson is the number one best-selling author of Devil in the White City and Dead Wake. His books have sold, are you ready for this, more than nine million copies. And now comes the hit, The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. This is Eric Larson. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for being here. Hey, my pleasure. You proved me wrong. You ready? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. How did I do that? I have read Manchester. I have not only been to Chartwell many times, I've actually seen the private bathtub to the public. I (laughs) I love the cabinet war rooms. I am one of the only radio broadcasters to ever have hosted a program from there. Wow. Alan... Alan Packwood has hosted me at the Churchill College in Cambridge. I have even been to lunch with Sir Nicholas Soames, Winston Churchill's grandson. When I heard of your book, I said, love Larson, loved Devil in the White City. But what is there left to say about Winston Churchill? And man, (laughs) oh man, did you prove me wrong. So congrats. Well, Well, thank you very much. But I will tell you that in the uh, four and a half years that I was working on this book, I think I said uh, something along those lines to myself every day, like, what am I trying to do? Well, but in the afterword to the book, somewhere at the end, you said that you thought that there would be value in the frivolous or what had heretofore been regarded as frivolous. 
When you put all the frivolous together, for me, it provided a narrative that up until now I was totally lacking, at least with regard to that one snapshot, that one year, his first year of being prime minister from May of 40 to May of 41. That was the, the beauty of the book. Well, you know, my, my goal was to really, the, the, the whole purpose of the book was try to get a sense of how anybody goes about surviving um, uh, something like the bliss, which is, you know, which what brought me to that one-year period, and and so that really necessarily involved getting into the into the the quotidian details of how people got through their lives, which weirdly enough nobody else had done before, and so to me it was just like you know I mean after a while I started to hit my stride and I started to think wait a minute this, there is an opportunity here to say something new. So, and if it's, you know, if it's bringing in the frivolous, which I don't think it is, it's not frivolous, it's like the way they really live their lives, you know? Right, um, right. But uh, it, was, it became a very interesting journey into the personal side of, of that family. Okay, how about this? I, I went to Gettysburg two weeks ago. I should be embarrassed to tell you that as a Pennsylvanian, I hadn't been there since I was a kid. I won't bore you with the reason that I made the journey. Came back, talked about it up first on television, then I talked about it on radio, and the telephone lines melted down with people who are really knowledgeable about Gettysburg and the Civil War generally. You know that all things Churchill are like that. There, there's this whole you know, cottage industry of, of authorities. You had to know they'd all be looking over your shoulder every inch of the final product. Was that intimidating? Oh, you know what? It was in- <laughs> it was incredibly intimidating. So, so actually, I, I, I did something that I have not done previously, previously on any of my books, and I think I'm going to do forever afterwards. First of all, I hired a professional fact checker, a wonderful woman who works for the Washington Post. Um, uh, but I also sent the book, the manuscript, uh, the, the penultimate manuscript, shall we say, to uh, to three uh, three Churchill excerpts. One of whom was Alan Packwood. Um, and they were all graciously you know, agreed to read it, and much to, much to my delight, they loved it. Now, they each had, like, like their, their own list of, like, you know, you know, three dozen critiques about, oh, well, you know, we don't say this in London, we do say this. Um, but they loved it, and, and, and they were actually surprised that the book told them things they hadn't actually already known. So I, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Okay, so I've buried the lead. This is Eric Larson, best known, I would say, for historical nonfiction. The new book, The Splendid and the Vile, is a look at one year, a critical year, the first year of, of Winston Churchill's uh, Prime uh, prime ministry, I guess I should say, May of 40 through May of 1941. How much knowledge of Churchill did you have going into the project? Uh-huh. First of all, one of the one of the little tweaks that my British readers gave me was that it's not called a prime ministry; it's called a premiership. Who knows? Uh-huh. But, but anyway, you know what, what I knew going into this was actually not much. I mean, I had read some, you know, one Churchill biography. I'd read the Manchester thing, um, and I have to emphasize that I, I came to this book not because of Churchill. The original goal was simply to get a grasp on how people did survive the German air campaign of 1940-41 in London in light of a sort of an epiphany I had when I moved to Manhattan and just realized how 9-11 was so different for people here than, than you know, anywhere else in the country. So I set out initially just to find a typical London family to write about. And then I thought, well, why not write about the quintessential London family, which is the Churchill family and their his, his advisors and so forth. And that's when I plunged into, 
you know, the Churchill literature, and then that's when I started asking myself, what, what am I doing? But, you know, I, I, I made a strategic decision very early on that I was going to read as much as I could to get a really good sense of the Churchillian landscape, you know, the high points and low points and so forth. And then using my lens, like how did they do it? How did they survive this on a daily basis? I was going to plunge into the archives, which is where I feel most comfortable. And that's where all the good stuff is. Did you know of the existence of the so-called mass observation diaries before you undertook this project? I am ashamed to say no. Well, you know, I plunged in. I plunged in. I, I mean, you know, like, like honestly, like. I, well, well yeah, tell everybody what they are. Yeah, I will. I will. But I, you know, I, I came across this actually. I mean, early on, as soon as I started reading about the the Churchillian landscape, I came across this outfit, Mass Observation. Mass Observation was a social research organization, non-governmental, that was founded before the war, before anybody knew there was a war coming. Um, the goal being to to try to get a sense of what ordinary British life was like. And so they recruited you know, literally hundreds of diarists to do daily diaries and submit them for, for, for essentially for processing. So along comes the war, and, and many of these diarists continued to keep their diaries. And so what you thus have is this invaluable sense of the day-to-day stress and trauma and heroics of that, of that whole period. It was a, an incredible, and is, an incredible resource. Right. So what it allowed you to do was not only to rely on on the rich record of what was going on at 10 Downing or at Checkers to a, a lesser extent at Chartwell during that year and tell the story of the Churchill family. But you really were able to tell us what life was like for the ordinary Londoner. Yes. Yes. I mean, the minutiae. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am transfixed by some of the little details of, of that period. One character, for example, speaking of mass observation, one of my favorite characters is a young woman named Olivia Cockett. And she was, uh, she was actually having an affair. She, she was a Scotland Yard clerk. She was having an affair with a married man. And, and, and her, her diary, which she kept throughout 1940-41, the critical period, her, her diary really sketches what I think is the... It, it, it is, is the essential arc of how Londoners got through this thing. She began, you know, with the first deliberate bombing of London on September 7, 1940. She was terrified, terrified like everybody else in London. Um, her terror persisted for a while. And then one day, one day, she put out an incendiary bomb that had landed outside her home. Incendiary bombs were what the Germans dropped first during a raid to light their targets so that other bombers um, following would know where to bomb. Um, and so she, she, as people were instructed to do, she put out this incendiary bomb by herself. And she was so thrilled, so elated to at last, you know, at last she was able to do something in this war. And suddenly her fear went away. Her fear went away. Um, and she became, you know, progressively more heroic. Um, her boyfriend, unfortunately, became more and more cowardly, which really annoyed her. Um, but, you know, this, this arc continues to the point where, at a later point in, 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 in the story, um, she's out walking with Bill during an air, air raid, as one does. Um, two bombs, uh, they hear two bombs falling, the characteristic scream of these two German high-explosive bombs. Um, Bill, her, her lover, shouts, get down. And, she, and her response is, not in my new coat, I'm not. <laughs> this, was really, this was really the big takeaway for me was... What I never appreciated up until reading Eric Larson's new book was the way in which life 
did go on. For example, I, I highlighted a couple of things. Page 173, you've got a journalist named Virginia Cowles. She is uh, near Dover. I'll read if you don't mind. The setting was majestic. Okay, the setting was majestic. In front of you stretched the blue water of the channel, and in the distance you could distinguish the hazy outline of the coast of France. Houses lay below, boats and trawlers drifted in the harbor agleam with sun. The water sparkled. Above hung twenty or more immense gray barrage balloons like airborne manatees. Meanwhile, high above, pilots fought to the death. Quote, you lay in the tall grass with the wind blowing gently across you and watched the hundreds of silver planes swarming through the heavens like clouds of gnats. People were able to lead their lives, and yet above them, or frankly in front of them, the war was abounding. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it was not unusual, for example, to somebody would be driving down a country road, and there would be an RAF pirate, a pirate, pirate pilot, an RAF pilot uh, trying to hitch a ride back to his base. I mean, you know, um, this was it was it was it was a situation where you know, as as Germany you know, intensified this air campaign. Um, it really was a battle that was fought in the skies over over London, over over the British countryside. You know, you'd be pruning your roses, and you would see, a, a, you know, death in the air. So, and and I, I really wanted to try to capture that sense as well. Well, was it was it not exhilarating for these folks? Well, <laughs> depends on which folks. Um, for their parents, parents of those pilots, I wouldn't say so, but but. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating to watch this, um, and in fact, sometimes too exhilarating. There was an there was an episode where there was a, a an air battle uh, that took place uh, over the Channel in in view of a BBC radio car that had been sent out to to try to observe uh, a raid and to comment on it. And, and, and the commentator was so enthusiastic, got so into it, treating it almost as if it were a soccer match, that the next day, according to Home Intelligence Reports, which is another incredible archive of material, according to Home Intelligence Reports, people, you know, the, the, the citizens of, 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 of England, of London, were appalled at the enthusiasm, at, at, at you know, this, this, is, this is life and death. How dare you do this as if it were a soccer match? However, another half of the group of listeners, you know, the polled by this home intelligence, loved it. They thought this was fantastic. It was completely elating. This is Eric Larson. The book is The Splendid and the Vile. Again, he focuses on the first year, I'll say, premiership of Winston Churchill. That one year happened to involve some of the better-known oratory of the prime minister, including this, which I think was June 4. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Eric, what surprised me from from your book is that, quote, the speech had done little to fortify the public. In other words, some of the speeches that historically we look back on and we say, my God, what a wordsmith, what a delivery. At the time, some of them were not interpreted as such. Well, well, some at the time were perceived as just being what they were, which is which is 
speeches. Uh, you know, I mean, Churchill was Churchill was known to be an incredibly articulate uh, speaker, and but you know, one one thing that I, I think is very important to note, you know, the 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 uh, that the, the speech that you just played a recording of was the Dunkirk speech, um, and and beyond the, the the rhetoric that we remember, and you know, I'm not taking anything away from those lines; they were fantastic, especially in retrospect. But yeah, the thing that I, I, I came to appreciate in the course of reading many of many of these uh, speeches, and I, I would argue that the Churchill we know is the Churchill who emerged in 1940-41. But the thing about these speeches that that I found particularly striking was their structure. Um, what is noteworthy about Churchill is that um, he didn't try to snow the public. He didn't try to give them happy news or tell them a false story. Um, he understood on an instinctive level that when people are being bombed at night or, you know, when, they're, when they're, their sons are, are holed up at Dunkirk, that, uh, you know, they, they know what the ground truth is. So his, his approach was to give a sober accounting of, of of whatever was happening at the moment, he did this consistently through through a, through a number of his speeches during that year. Give a sober account, sometimes so sober that uh, <laughs> so terrifying that home intelligence reported the next day that that people were absolutely terrified that they felt sick after hearing hearing a speech. But he would always follow then with actual practical grounds for optimism. You know, for example, pointing out the strength of the RAF, uh, re reminding his listeners that, by the way, Britain does have a navy, you know, a very strong navy. And then would come that fabulous rhetoric that we will, you know, we will we'll fight on the beaches or, or never has so much been owed by so many to so few. Well, I have... I have one more, if you'll indulge me. I think yeah, this yeah, was go, go. I think this was June 19. Go ahead. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. I learned from Eric Larson that some listeners thought he was drunk that night, and in yeah. truth, he had a cigar perched in his mouth the whole time. Is that it? Yes, he was being he was being a bit petulant. He had given he had delivered the speech during the day at the House of Commons, with, with to great effect. And and that night he had to do a BBC speech. Um, he he was doing it grudgingly. He was he was sort of muscled into it by the Ministry of Information, and they expected him to write a new speech for for, for the public audience over the BBC. But Churchill, being Churchill, had a tendency at times to be somewhat obstreperous. Churchill decided he was going to deliver that same speech, and by God, he was going to do it with a cigar in his mouth. And so, yeah, absolutely. The next day, people were, you know, again, home intelligence was picking up on this. They, they, they heard from uh, a number of listeners who were concerned that, that, that Churchill might have dined a little bit too well that night, that he was drunk. Somebody suggested he might have some kind of a heart condition and should lie down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so it was... Uh, it was, it was great. It was great. Okay. Finally, will you indulge me and evaluate some prose from an aspiring writer? Uh, evaluate some prose from an aspiring writer. What do you mean? I want to read something to you and have you critique it briefly. Sure. We have, quote, we have seen many women elegized and eulogized and otherwise honored from Marilyn Monroe to the most recent Freudian preoccupation in the person, or more precisely, in the body of Sybil Shepherd. But we have perpetuated a gross neglect of the real woman. 
While our more visceral needs are associated with the great bodies of our time, what of the intellect behind those bodies, the real meat, as it were, of character? Perhaps modern mid-teen America would grow up totally cathected, I don't know, to the image of woman as body. But there is a cult of admiration extant today in which neither bounteous Bardot nor luscious shepherd may gain paramountcy. I can't even pronounce some of the words used in this, but do they ring a bell? You know, I, 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 they actually don't ring a bell to me, but I got a feeling you're going to tell me they were written by Churchill. No, Eric. Holy <laughs> crap. That is Eric Larson, sophomore, sophomore in the college, November 28, 1973, The Daily what? Pennsylvanian. Uh, holy <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I thought oh, for man. sure you'd recognize oh, it. <laughs> I got to tell I got to give you a huge amount of points here. I, I, nobody, nobody has ever done this. This is so great. This so so great. It, it was under the headline, The Immortal Mrs. Peel, and you were writing about Sybil Shepherd at the time. Uh, I guess her character, Diana Rigg. And and I honestly, I need a dictionary to get through what you wrote at Penn as a sophomore. Uh, yeah, it was, I, I'm remembering now. Was, I think it was about Diana Rigg, who, who yes. was my, my the person I, I was just absolutely in love with from the age of like 12. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Hey, man, I love I love your book. I love your I've not finished it. I'm two thirds of the way through. And you know what? I, I don't want to finish it. Uh, which is the, uh, the the most number of stars I can give you. So what a privilege to have you here, and I wish you all good things. Thank you very much. I loved it. That's Eric Larson, ladies and gentlemen. The book is tremendous. The Splendid and the Vile. I highly recommend it. You know I get wrapped up in books sometimes, and I love having a good book on my nightstand, and, and this is it. It just It just so speaks to me. And I, I didn't want to put Eric through this final comment um, because I, I just didn't want to have to make him wade into this. But as I read this book about Winston Churchill and what he did for the world, the idea that the statue of, of, of Churchill adjacent to Westminster is under wraps and protected from protesters, it appalls me. It appalls me. None of us is perfect, but it appalls me. The man literally saved the world. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program. Weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.